The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. His name literally means graveyard, which is appropriate for a gloomy Dane, the greatest gloomy Dane this side of Hamlet. He's been called the father of existentialism, and yet he's also one of the great Christian thinkers of the 19th century, if not all time. Soren Kierkegaard lived a short and relatively uneventful life. In his 42 years, he almost never left Copenhagen. He made five trips abroad, one to nearby Sweden and four to almost nearby Berlin. And yet we can't help but judge him by his life as well as his works. We're encouraged to do so by the man himself. And so we find ourselves in the writings and the pieces of biography and autobiography, thrilled not by the vicissitudes of his external actions, but by the roller coaster ride of his internal life, which ascended to towering peaks and plummeted to deep and mysterious valleys. In his writings, we see a mind by turns earnest, ironic, playful, artistic, wise, witty, and always, always evasive. We will look at the men he most admired and the woman he most loved. He's a theologian for a secular age and a philosopher for those with a religious disposition. A seducer who doesn't just act differently from anyone else, but wants differently. A defender of faith who attacks it with just as much fervor. And if he had one moment, one thing in his life that defined him, it's this. He fell desperately in love with a woman named Regina Olson. He courted her and won. She returned his favors. He proposed, she accepted, and he immediately regretted it. He spent months plotting how best to break things off, and finally did, living the rest of his life in gloomy celibacy, devoted to literature and philosophy, watching her marry another, and finally leaving her everything in his will. Questions arise. Why did he leave Regina? How did he do it? And what does any of it mean? Life can only be understood backwards, Kierkegaard famously said, but it must be lived forwards. We will travel backwards to the 19th century to help us go forward in the 21st, today on The History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. We have some wonderful news to share. We have made it onto a list of the 60 best literature podcasts on the planet. And in fact, we were awarded the number one position. My thanks to all the listeners and donators and Patreon supporters who helped to make all of this possible, and to the folks who put this together. I guess it might be the algorithm at Feedspot. Somehow they ranked the podcast. I I don't know if there was criteria. I was based on reach and domain freshness and all these other technical things. And somehow they put it all into their cauldron and stirred it up and lit a fire under it. And somehow we wound up on the top. Okay, Soren Kierkegaard, I can hardly wait to get started. I'm feeling anxious, like we're headed into some points unknown. 
I always feel this way when I read Kierkegaard. He's evasive, he's slippery, hard to pin down. It's somewhat vertiginous to read him and to try to understand his meaning. This is all part of his strategy, I would say. But he's very rich and rewarding. I learn something new every single time. Every paragraph, even, I would say. He knocks you sideways. And look, I'm just Jack Wilson. Total lightweight. I get knocked sideways by the gentlest of breezes. But the mighty poet W.H. Auden said something similar. And he's not a trembling little leaf like me. He was a mighty oak. To knock him sideways takes some serious power. Well, Kierkegaard has that. We're in the Romantic period, in these waves of of Romanticism are still washing through Europe. You can see that in the forms that Kierkegaard chooses. They are very novel-like. He's applying fictional tools to his inquiries, but you know what? I have a few things I want to tell you about him first, his biography. I think we should start with the two men who knocked him sideways, so to speak. If there's one influence on him, I might say it was God. If there's two, I'd say God and Jesus. But you could make an argument for a different pair of men, which will, why don't we start with them, his own father and Socrates. I might say that he applied the example of Socrates, his life and his thinking, as it's delivered to us by Plato, that Kierkegaard applied all that to the dilemmas of Christianity and to life itself. And already you're probably saying, okay, speaking of cauldrons, (laughs) that's kind of a wild brew, Jack. A lot of strong spirits going into that cocktail, bartender. And I say, yes, indeed. Or as a barkeep might say, well, what do the barkeeps say in your world? I was going to say, yes, indeedy, but that's not how they talk at the dives I wander into. I'd say a lot of strong spirits going into that drink, bartender. And the bartender would say, eh. <laughs> drink it down. You'll feel lightheaded and dizzy and maybe a little euphoric. That's the cocktail known as the Kierkegaard, best in small doses. So let's start with his life. We're going to build to his famous engagement and unpack all of that. The saddest love story ever told. It's been called... But let's start with his life, and in true biographical fashion, let's start with his parents. His mother, he never mentions his mother in his writings, ever. He kept journals, diaries, notes for projects, and, of course, a large body of philosophical work. He, he roams all over his own life. He mines it for things to include in his writings. He ruminates in his diaries. He's very open and honest. He was a great considerer, if that's a word, of things that affected him, and yet his mother is just not there. We learn from other sources that she was good-humored and had an even disposition. That's interesting, sort of the yang to her husband's yin and to her son Soren's yin, for that matter. Kierkegaard talks a lot about his father, who was the opposite of what I just described. Not so good-humored, not so even. Some say that there's evidence in the absence, that it's revealing that Kierkegaard never mentions his mother, and no doubt it is significant somehow, but it could mean a couple of different things, couldn't it? Exactly what is it revealing of? 
Did he despise her for her happy disposition? Did he love her because of it and want to keep her out of his writings? Maybe he thought that a happy disposition was not serious and that considering her was unworthy of his time. He was a pretty serious guy. Did he fight against her example in his own life because he thought she was unserious? Did he love her too much, hate her too much, or was he indifferent to her? All three could be the reason for not mentioning her. His father, though, is there all the time. And that makes sense. His father passed along a few different legacies that Soren embraced and or could not escape. Kierkegaard's parents were old when he was born on May 5th. 1813. What a coincidence. This is the day that this episode is scheduled to come out. I did not plan that. People, I ordinarily try to avoid that kind of thing. I prefer to zag where others zig. Always be on the side of the zag, people. We have enough zigging in this world. Okay, where were old parents? His father was 57. His mother was 45. His father had been married once before. But his first wife had died without having any children. His mother was a maid in the household. She then, after they got married, had seven children. Five of them died early in Kierkegaard's life before he turned 20. His father, meanwhile, was a wool merchant who was successful and had basically retired by the time Soren came along. He had a sprightly demeanor, but this was kind of a mask. In actuality, he was deeply sad, and he had a deep and active imagination, and when he retired, it was to devote himself to the study of philosophy and theology. He brought intellectuals into their home for discussions, and he had a dark secret. We'll get to that in a moment. Kierkegaard gives us a flavor of his father in one of his writings. Quote, At lunch one day, I overturned a salt shaker. Passionate as he was and intense as he easily could become, he began to scold so severely that he even said that I was a prodigal and things like that. Then I made an objection, reminding him of an old episode in the family when my sister Nicoline had dropped a very expensive tureen and father had not said a word but pretended it was nothing at all. He replied, Well, you see, it was such an expensive thing that no scolding was needed. She realized quite well that it was wrong. But precisely when it is a trifle, there must be a scolding. End quote. It's this kind of outside-the-box thinking that was handed down to Kierkegaard. There's a paradox there. It makes sense. There's logic to it. It's even insightful. But it's not the first thought. The first thought would be, the more costly the damage, the worse the anger and the discipline, the scolding the more severe it should be. That's straightforward. The second thought is, well, let's add what we know of human psychology to this and see if the calculus is the same. We will see that in a bit with Hegel and Christianity too, for that matter. We'll see how Kierkegaard inherited his father's way of shifting the glass, tilting it slightly to get a clearer picture, making you realize that what you thought was fine was actually blurry. His father called Soren Fork, because he had a way of cutting into things with his sharp remarks. They were fast friends, those two, and would remain so until the end. When he died, Kierkegaard, or when his father died, Kierkegaard lamented that there was only one person with whom he could speak about his father. He had only one friend, 
who would truly understand how much he felt, how deeply he felt about his father and how his passing affected him. He said, I so deeply desired that he might have lived a few years more. He was a faithful friend. But Kierkegaard's father had been harboring a secret. He told Kierkegaard what it was before he died. Apparently, when Kierkegaard's father was a boy, he was working as a shepherd. This is how successful wool merchants get started. Apparently, they start out as peasants tending sheep. And he was so miserable that he went to the top of a hill and fulminated against God, cursing God for giving him such a miserable existence. Later, the thought of his own transgression haunted him, and he couldn't escape the idea that he was cursed. It was with him for the rest of his life. He was then sent, he grew up a little bit more, he, sent, he was sent into the city at age 17, where his uncle had set up a trade dealing in groceries and woolens, and there Kierkegaard's, Kierkegaard's father was so successful that he was in a position to retire by the age of 40. And yet, he could not escape that memory of himself on the hill. He thought he had sinned with that diatribe against his maker, and that he was doomed to a life of suffering as a consequence. He thought he would survive all of his children, which, as any parent knows, is the worst fate you can imagine. And he almost did. Five of his seven children died, bringing him pain after pain after pain. And you can't help wondering how a man like that must have treated the children when they were alive, loving them, perhaps even being tender toward them at times, but viewing them as like the sacrifices that he himself would have to endure as a punishment for his sins. We're not far away from what is probably Kierkegaard's most famous work, Fear and Trembling, which considers the story of Abraham and Isaac. We will get there soon. So, along comes Soren, melancholy like his father, quick-witted, good at school but not standing out as exceptionally gifted. He has very little joy in his life. He wasn't particularly popular with his schoolmates. He was allowed to play outside, but he was physically feeble. His body had a slight deformity. His brother, Peter, seven years older than him, followed their father's wishes and went into theology. Soren did too, at first, but by the time he got to university, he was ready to cut loose. He had money, thanks to his family's middle-class status, maybe upper middle class, you might say, and he went to the opera and theater. He bought a lot of books and clothes. He kept a carriage and a pair of horses, and he kept them at the ready to take him on trips through the fields and forests outside Copenhagen. His studies suffered, and he racked up debts, and his father put him on an allowance, although it was a fairly generous allowance. Soren started to switch from theology to philosophy then. He wrote a few things like, from the manuscript of One Still Living, a pamphlet, and he attacked Hans Christian Andersen, a much more famous and extremely popular writer. Genius does not whine, Kierkegaard said, but like a thunderstorm goes straight counter to the wind. He was looking for a big subject, and he had the idea of writing about Faust, the Wandering Jew, and Don Juan. Then he started looking at satire in the ancient world, and it was there 
And then that he realized that his guy, the one who gave him the most pleasure and fascinated him the most, was Socrates. Meanwhile, his life was full of pain and suffering. His siblings died, as I mentioned, all except Peter. And then his father died, and it was something of a curse. Not only did he miss his father as a fellow gloomy spirit and passionate devotee of the life of the mind, he felt the burden of being connected to his father's belief in being cursed. If he himself was Isaac, waiting to be sacrificed by his father, the sinner, then his father, too, had sacrificed something. His belief in his children, his belief that life could be happy. Kierkegaard called this revelation and the death of his father, quote, the great earthquake, the terrible upheaval, which suddenly forced on me a new and infallible interpretation of all phenomena. End quote. And he said, quote, For he died not away from me, but for me, so that there might yet, perchance, become something of me. End quote. Soren Kierkegaard now believed that he had been chosen by Providence and his father for some special purpose. But what would that be? For that, we need to better understand Kierkegaard's love for Socrates his mission in life, and his engagement to Regina. Let's take a quick break and explore those things. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Kierkegaard's first major work was his dissertation called The Conception of Irony with Constant Reference to Socrates. This is the key to understanding Kierkegaard. He wrote his books and lived his life according to the ideas that he sets forth in this book. So what do we know about Socrates? What does his example tell us? Nietzsche was obsessed with Socrates as well. He couldn't get over the idea that Socrates never got drunk. 
that he took the Dionysian spirit and crushed it with a layer of Apollonian thought. Logic over passion, brains over body, thinking over living. Kierkegaard was a bit different. Kierkegaard assessed Socrates as both a model life, but also as an intellectual tool, a lever to move systems of thought in a big way, or a crowbar to pry open new ideas. Let's consider a classic Socratic dialogue. What happens in it? Socrates famously says, I only know that I don't know. So he and his fellow speakers, his fellow Athenians, will consider a topic, let's say justice or love or the way society should be organized, and Socrates will ask questions. Well, you there, you seem confident that you know all about love, he might say. I don't doubt that you do. So, tell me something. What do you mean when you say X? And does that also apply to Y? And so on and so on, until the poor, self-proclaimed expert is reduced to acknowledging that his whole conception of love, everything he thought he knew, was really just a house of cards resting on a shaky table. The definitions do not hold. A few questions were enough for Socrates to kick the legs out. You don't know what you're talking about, is the implication. And the accompanying implication is, I know better. But here's the thing. We don't know exactly what Socrates thought of these things either. He doesn't deliver a sermon or a summary or the truth. He asks the questions, arrives nowhere, and in doing so, upends the current thought. The idea, the reason why we read Plato even today is that we think there's wisdom there. Either the wisdom is that Socrates really did know something about the topic, and though he didn't state it directly, we can infer it from the questions and the direction of the dialogues. Socrates is giving hints. at the, He's hinting at the truth. Or the wisdom that we derive is that these things are unknowable. And Socrates, as he said, is the wise one for knowing that he doesn't know, that these things are unknowable. And that's something you can fathom in a few seconds, that certain topics are contentious and difficult to know, but there's something to be gained by thinking your way through them. By engaging with the dialogues, you might not have an answer per se, but you aren't just left with the one thing either, the the thing being that nothing is knowable. You have, what do you have? You have an examined life, which is the only one worth living, Socrates said. You're smarter even if you're less certain. Kierkegaard looked around at the Copenhagen of his day, thought it was a bit akin to ancient Athens, and thought that he needed to do something like what Socrates had done to shake up Athens. He needed to do something similar to Copenhagen. In his view, Copenhagen was Christian, and everyone was happy with that. And philosophically, they all believed that Hegel had sorted everything out, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and on and up we go, climbing from thought to thought as if they were rungs of a ladder, with the top just ahead and all of us almost there. Kierkegaard said no. No, 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 no. That complacent thought is not just lazy, it's wrong, and it's preventing you from everything that's important. You're not thinking your way through these things. You're accepting them as dogma, and you ignore all the difficulties. 
when in fact those difficulties should be where you spend all your time, working your way through them. Working your way through the difficulties isn't just extraneous or unnecessary. It's precisely where you will learn the most about your way of life, your thinking, and above all, perhaps, the best place and the best way to understand your faith in God. Kierkegaard loved the word myutic, which means midwifery. He applied that to a lot of different things, but at its core, he wants it to mean a kind of liberation, the liberation of subjectivity. Your true self is the one that rejects complacency and thinks its way through hard problems. You don't just take what's handed to you, you discover it. You explore it with your imagination and your intellect. You truly fathom what these most difficult conundrums ask of you and what they have to teach you. Socrates imposed this on us through his questions. Kierkegaard has different tools. He has poetry, but above all, he has prose. The prose of his journals, the prose of novels, the techniques of fiction, which he sets into essays and philosophical works. And where Socrates hides behind Plato's authorship and his own questions, Kierkegaard hides behind pseudonyms. Vigilius Hofniensis, which means the watchman of Copenhagen. Johannes de Silentio, anticlamacus, hilarious bookbinder. Everyone in Copenhagen knew that Soren was the author of his works. He himself would sometimes write that the book had been edited by Soren Kierkegaard. So why do it? Why give you all why why write with all these pseudonyms? Because it gives the reader that same uncertainty that one gets with Socrates. Did Socrates think this or did Plato? Did Socrates think this or was he just asking questions to try to expose something else? Were his questions a test? to see how strongly his interlocutor held those opinions, or were the questions presented in order to hint at some larger truth. Kierkegaard did this with his prose, and he felt that he was misunderstood most of the time. I'm so misunderstood, he would complain, that people don't even understand my complaint that they're misunderstanding me. He was trying to shock people into a new understanding. Maybe that's not quite right. I don't mean he was trying to shock in the sense of being immoral or unethical, transgressive. I mean shock in the sense, although he kind of was those things too, transgressive anyway. I mean shock in the sense of plunging people into ice-cold water in order to wake them up. The shock of the frozen sea, an early form of the Kafkan X. Kafka saw it as a frozen sea saw the dilemma as life and literature, the human condition, human beings, as a humanity, as a frozen sea, he needed to chop with an axe. Kierkegaard's was more like an inviting body of water that turned out to be ice cold. You jump in expecting a nice swim and suddenly your heart is jolted and your mind feels more awake than it's ever felt before and your very survival is suddenly at stake if you're engaging with Kierkegaard on his own terms and not misunderstanding him, as he felt most people did. There's another example 
that we take from Socrates and also from Jesus, the idea of a self-sacrificing life, a life in pursuit of a mission and an all-embracing 100% devotion to that life, even at great cost. When he was still in his early 20s, he wrote, quote, What I really need is to arrive at a clear comprehension of what I am to do, not of what I am to grasp with my understanding, except insofar as this understanding is necessary for every action. The point is to comprehend what I am called to do, to see what the Godhead really means that I shall do, to find a truth which is truth for me, and to find the idea for which I am willing to live and to die. End quote. This is where we get the seedlings of existentialism, the breaking free of objectivity or conventional wisdom and thought that everyone else takes for granted, and an exploration instead into the subjectivity of the world and its ideas. The idea that a singular individual exploring himself has an importance and a centrality and a truth that goes beyond anything we can have as a common and universal and objective truth, because this is about becoming rather than being. Remember that Socrates said, know thyself, and he also implied that not knowing was the starting point for actual knowledge. Kierkegaard adds to this, quote, One must first learn to know himself before knowing anything else. Not until a man has inwardly understood himself and then sees the course he is to take does his life gain peace and meaning. Only then is he free of that irksome, sinister traveling companion, that irony of life, which manifests itself in the sphere of knowledge and invites true knowing to begin with a not-knowing, Socrates, just as God created the world from nothing. But in the waters of morality, it is especially at home to those who still have not entered the trade winds of virtue. Here it tumbles a person about in a horrible way, for a time lets him feel happy and content in his resolve to go ahead along the right path, then hurls him into the abyss of despair. Often it lulls a man to sleep with the thought, after all, things cannot be otherwise, only to awaken him suddenly to a rigorous interrogation. Frequently, it seems to let a veil of forgetfulness fall over the past, only to make every single trifle appear in a strong light again. When he struggles along the right path, rejoicing in having overcome temptation's power, there may come at almost the same time, right on the heels of perfect victory, an apparently insignificant external circumstance which pushes him down like Sisyphus from the height of the crag. Often, when a person has concentrated on something, a minor external circumstance arises which destroys everything, as in the case of a man who, weary of life, is about to throw himself into the Thames and at the crucial moment is halted by the sting of a mosquito. Frequently, a person feels his very best when the illness is the worst, as in tuberculosis. In vain, he tries to resist it, but he has not sufficient strength, and it is no help to him that he has gone through the same thing many times. The kind of practice acquired in this way does not apply here. End quote. Living life as a kind of martyr, accepting the fate of it, which brings us to Regina, the love of his life, and maybe the saddest engagement in the history of the world. I suppose there have been others, 
but maybe not any quite as sad as this one in the history of literature anyway. Sadder even than Romeo and Juliet, I would say. And actually, they were married, weren't they? Even if they... But even if they hadn't been, you could say that this is sadder. The Brownings make me cry, but those are happy tears. Okay, Soren and Regina. Let's take a quick break and then come back with the full sad story. With this teaser. Quote, My engagement to her, Regina, and the breaking of it, Kierkegaard wrote, is really my relationship to God. Regina Olson was born to a prominent family in Copenhagen in January 1822, making her eight years and some months younger than Kierkegaard. Her father was in the finance ministry. Kierkegaard respected him. She had an artistic side, painting miniatures. She was viewed by all as pretty and cheerful and wanting to be happy. Quote, like everyone. (laughs) We put that last part in quotes because not all happiness is equal. Kierkegaard's certainly was a bit unusual, sort of like Dante's. I don't just want you, Beatrice. I'm going to write a long poem about the cosmos, hell and then purgatory and then heaven, where you are the guide who escorts me to paradise. There are a lot of parallels between Dante and La Vida Nuova and Kierkegaard and the Diary of a Seducer, which he would later write, based in part on his experiences with Regina. Florence and Copenhagen were somewhat similar, cities with narrow streets and walls around them, a teapot for Kierkegaard's tempest, as John Updike put it. Copenhagen had 125,000 residents in the 19th century, and the number of those in Kierkegaard's social strata was a subset of that. Not a big number. Both The Seducer's Diary and La Vida Nuova are full of chance encounters on streets. I don't know anything quite like this today, except for maybe what happens at college campuses. I think young lovers do this there. That's my guess anyway. It's certainly true when I was in college, where you pass by someone on your way to class, two of you smile at one another, or you studiously ignore each other. And if you're in love, you develop plans to make these chance encounters occur with something more frequent than just chance would supply. You develop strategies. Ah, you might say, here's where she goes, and at this time, well, tomorrow I'll be there too, and then I'll ignore her. (laughs) That might be your whole damn day if you're in love, and somehow that feels productive. Are young people today beyond all this? They can swipe and click and like and friend and all that. Can you get beyond these chance meetings 
Here I go. I'm on my way. I think she walks on this path at this time. And there she is. Be still, my heart. As beautiful as ever. And then you smile or not. Oh, she smiled. Holy sugar. But I shall ignore her. It's over. She's gone. We're done now. I'll go write about this encounter for five hours in my diary and try again next week. What a way to live. (laughs) But this is the diary of the seducer, and it's a bit how Kierkegaard was in real life. Regina and Soren first met at someone else's home. She was 15 and he was 24. She made an immediate impression on him. Beautiful and pure, he thought, with a halo around her head, was his bedazzled vision. She, meanwhile, liked him too, although the descriptions we have of him are somewhat unusual from this time, not from her, but from friends. A friend who saw him at his brother's wedding, at Kierkegaard's brother's wedding, said, quote, I found his appearance almost comical. He was then 23 years old. He had something quite irregular in his entire form and had a strange coiffure. His hair rose almost six inches above his forehead into a tussled crest that gave him a strange bewildered look, end quote. But the 15-year-old Regina saw something in him. She liked his eyes. They had depth. He had a soulfulness that she was drawn to, even if it did not have the, even if he did not have the chipper spirit that she herself did. Regina, as we will see, was capable of depths, too. She was being tutored by a man who was older than her, but younger than Kierkegaard. This will make readers of The Diary of a Seducer smile with recognition. In that story, the narrator uses a younger man as his proxy for a while in order to get close to his beloved. For three years, Kierkegaard worked a careful and slow approximation of a courtship with Regina. Encounters here and there, brief exchanges, strategic words. And then, three years later, he left the home, quote, with the firm intention of deciding the matter, end quote. He shows up on the street outside her house. She lives with her parents there. They go upstairs into the parlor room, and Kierkegaard asks her to play some music on the piano. She does so. But as soon as she begins, Kierkegaard grabs the music book and says, Oh, what do I care about music? It's you I'm looking for. You I've been seeking for two years. End quote. And the two of them become engaged. The next day, he regrets it. He has made a horrible mistake. But as we say, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, Regina. The girl and now the woman of my dreams, it's me, Soren, the perpetual dreamer, who cannot shake his own melancholy, who laments that he can never make you happy, who believes that he has been tapped by his maker for some higher calling, who will be a poet, a philosopher, a writer, someone who will change the way the world thinks, and who will take her into history, as Kierkegaard said but who cannot get married to her. There's a kind of cryptic reference in Kierkegaard's journals where he refers to a thorn in his flesh, some malady he had, and he saw a doctor about it. It seems to have been physical, and people have speculated that it was some kind of condition, maybe of a sexual nature, that contributed to the decision 
not to marry Regina. Nobody knows for sure. Impotence? Nobody knows. He seems to have gone to a brothel, which perhaps suggests he wasn't impotent, but then again, the visit to the brothel might have given him syphilis or might have given him the fear that he had syphilis, and that could also be the thorn that he meant. Who knows? I don't think anyone knows for sure. So, having become engaged to Regina and then regretting it in favor of his higher calling, he plots the breakup almost as carefully as he had plotted the seduction. The two are an item around town, this engaged couple. They stroll together up and down the street. Everyone believes that they are blissful in their forthcoming union. And meanwhile, he's busy. He's studying still at the university, seeking his master's degree. He's busy trying to lay the groundwork for the breakup, the rupture. He finally sends her a breakup letter, and in it he encloses the ring. She and her family were devastated. They refused to accept it, and Kierkegaard then spent a few more months trying to extricate himself. This is a time he later refers to as the time of terrors. I know he's commonly viewed as cold and calculating during this period of the breakup, and I guess he was, but imagine how he viewed himself. He is following Socrates and Jesus, and his other example is his father, who believed that his kids were all cursed and would die before they turned 34, so they would not outlive Christ. Imagine if Socrates or Jesus got engaged and had to break things off. They might struggle with it too. Would they not? How would Jesus do it? I am the Son of God who's going to be crucified for the sins of humanity. You want no part of this, lady. Trust me. Wouldn't his fiance, if it was something that if it was someone that Jesus had chosen in the first place, the kind of woman who he might have been attracted to, wouldn't she? We could expect that her answer might be, well, that's no reason. I will be there for you in your hour of need. How do you break up with a saint, an angel, someone with a halo around her head? Right? Well, how would Jesus have done it? One can imagine a Jesus figure deciding that, well, maybe it's better to say, I think your nose is too big or something like that, right? To be slightly cruel in order to save her from the torture of what she would endure at the end, knowing that she wouldn't accept that fate. She wouldn't accept being broken up with if she knew that that were the real reason. So it might be better to be slightly cruel in order to save her from the torture as she watches his fate unfold and being helpless to help helpless to help, being helpless in the face of it. Now, I say all this not to be blasphemous, but to put Kierkegaard's agonies in perspective. He too had this calling. He believed his mission was philosophy and religion. He needed to shake people out of their bourgeois thinking, and he couldn't do that from within the most bourgeois institution of all, marriage. He couldn't let himself be happy. And because he was miserable like his cursed father, and because he loved Regina, he couldn't inflict his misery on her. And yet, because he believed in subjectivity rather than objectivity, in becoming rather than being, in learning for yourself rather than being told something, because he was so, so Soren, <laughs> not so, so with a hyphen, but so, so Soren, he had to find a way to make Regina decide 
that it would be for the best, too. And isn't this kind of like God, after all? Isn't this a lot like the problem of free will, when you think about it? I want you to love me, you followers, but it's no good if I just make you do it. I must give you free will. So you decided for yourself, but damn it, if you can't come to the right conclusion, I might need to steer you toward it. That's that's my example with Jesus and the fiance where he tells her, You've I you just got a big nose. I don't I don't like your nose. Willing to have her think that he's petty and shallow. Because otherwise he knows she won't accept it. And it's for her own good to accept it. That's Kierkegaard with Regina. We need to break up. It's for your own happiness. I will sacrifice my own happiness for yours. But I can't just tell you this because I know you're big-hearted enough that you will say, I'll stay with you to make you happy. I will accompany you in your misery. I'll be there for you. I will support you. I need to have you reach the conclusion on your own that I am no good for you. So Regina's family summoned Kierkegaard to their home. Regina's father said, This is no good, Soren. She's lovesick. I'm worried about my daughter. You must speak with her. It was a demand. And Soren went into the room with her. And later, he would write in his journals, quote, I went there and made her see reason. She asked me, Will you never marry? I answered, Yes, in ten years' time, when I have had my fling, I will need a lusty girl to rejuvenate me. It was a necessary cruelty. Then she said to me, Forgive me for what I have done to you. I answered, It is I, after all, who should be asking that. She said, Promise to think of me. I did so. She said, Kiss me. I did, but without passion. Merciful God. End quote. You hear his invention. The part I said where I think you have a big nose. I can't marry a big-nosed woman. His thing was to say, oh, I'll need a lusty girl to rejuvenate me. He was trying to make her hate him so it would be easier on her. If he was despicable she would care less that he was dumping her. She might even think that it was all for the good, that it was her idea even, that it was something she would have chosen to do if only she had learned that about him. In any case, it would cushion the blow. It didn't really work. <laughs> quote, quote, this is Soren afterwards. Quote, I spent the nights crying in my bed but in the daytime was my usual self, even more flippant and witty than called for. My brother told me he would go to the family and prove to them that I was no cad. I said, if you do that, I'll blow your brains out. The best proof of how deeply concerned I was. End quote. It was over. His dissertation was received. He had a degree now in philosophy. He could have looked for work in academia. And instead, on the recovering from this disastrous breakup, he fled for Berlin and went on a spree of intellectual fervor. He spent five months in Berlin all through the winter, holed up and writing 
and he more or less completed his magnum opus, Either Or. The book, when it came out, was a sensation. Copenhagen was blown away by it, totally stumped, stumped by what was in it and stumped by the author who had inexplicably broken off this promising engagement and was throwing everything overboard in favor of this bizarre philosophical outpouring that they did not fully understand. Regina did not understand either. She did not really accept the breakup. She traveled through life now with this weird early relationship that she had with Soren hanging on to her like a shadow or a ghost. Copenhagen was not a large city. Suddenly, it was a small town with Kierkegaard everywhere in it. The two did not speak for 14 years, but he was writing things that most likely referred to her well, writing them explicitly referring to her in his journals, which were published later after Kierkegaard had died, but while Regina was still alive. But in those early years, he was writing things that alluded to her and which set gossipy tongues in motion. For 14 years, they didn't speak, but they passed each other on the street. They contrived to make this happen. Regina, even married, even as a dutiful wife, could not forget this man who had left her for God, as she viewed it. On his 39th birthday, she suddenly appeared on the street in front of his home. I can't help but smile when I see her, he said. She smiled back. He removed his hat in greeting, and she left. And then... She planned to leave for the Caribbean. Her husband was going to be the governor of the Danish West Indies. The passage, they knew, was potentially treacherous. Shipwrecks, disease, stormy weather. Her sister and her sister-in-law had previously died on such a journey. And so, on the day of her departure, she left her apartment and ran around Copenhagen searching for Soren. Not packing, not finalizing arrangements, searching for him. Finally, she saw him. One suspects that she knew where to look in order to bump into him, just as he knew the same about her. She spoke for the first time in 14 years to this man who had broken her heart. God bless you, she said. May good things come your way. That was all. He later described this as being spoken in a delicate voice. She was gone for years. The two never saw each other again. Kierkegaard, after the encounter, launched into a final burst of creative output and died before she returned. Now, there's a few other oddities. I can see from the clock on my wall that we are going to have to do this in three parts rather than two. Let's finish up the story of Kierkegaard's life and Regina's life, and then we'll do an episode on fear and trembling the Abraham and Isaac story. And then let's do an episode on the diary of a seducer. Kierkegaard deserves more than one episode. He deserves 10 episodes, but we'll satisfy ourselves with three and hope that you're satisfied as well, dear listener. And which, which in the case of a podcast listener, what does it mean to be satisfied? It probably means you still want more rather than you got too much. Most of the time, anyway, I guess it depends. Okay, so here's what else happened. There in Copenhagen in the 19th century. We have almost nothing from Regina about Kierkegaard. No letters, no references to him. 
Maybe a few allusions. That's about it. Kierkegaard was writing about Regina incessantly, about her, about his feelings for her, about why he broke things off, about what all of that meant. We have the 31 letters he wrote to her during their engagement. He kept writing in his journals. He once sent a batch of these writings to her new husband and said she might want to read these. She might want to know more about what happened between us and why I did what I did, but out of respect, I'll leave it to you to give them to her. Let you decide. Her husband decided, no thanks. He sent them back unopened with an indignant note. We know he faced the world as a heartless bastard, a cruel and calculating villain, as everyone believed him to be, but at night he would cry alone in his apartment. For Regina, I'll take her into history with me, he said, like Dante and Beatrice. Abelard and Eloise, together in our minds because we can't be together in real life, united in literature. I came, I saw, she conquered, he said. It was a beautiful and tragic love story. He did take her into history through his writings, and we'll discuss all that in the future, especially this Diary of a Seducer episode I'm talking about. They were not quite done with each other, though. Kierkegaard wondered if her marriage had been a mask. If she came for him, he wrote, all would be lost. He said, if she comes for me, all would be lost. I know well what she is capable of when she gets hold of me. But this was years later, after she had been married for more than ten years. Some torches hold their flame a long time. And then, one day, Regina, living in the Caribbean now, received a letter from a Peter Kierkegaard, Soren's older brother. Soren has died, the letter said, and his will only mentioned one person, you. The will said, quote, It is my will that my former fiancée, Mrs. Regina Schlegel, should inherit unconditionally whatever little I may leave behind. If she herself refuses to accept it, it is to be offered to her on the condition that she distribute it to the poor. What I wish to express is that for me, an engagement was and is just as binding as marriage, and that therefore my estate is to revert to her in exactly the same manner as if I had been married to her. End quote. When you read this story, read the agonies of Kierkegaard in giving up the earthly thing that made him happiest, condemning himself to melancholy, not in spite of his melancholy, but because of his melancholy, believing in his calling, and carrying it through by freeing himself to write some of the most aching and arduous explorations into the self and society, there's one thing that startles but doesn't surprise, or two things, perhaps. The first is that he believed the engagement was just as binding as marriage. And the second is something he says in the very first sentence of the will, I misread it the first time on purpose so I could close with it here. He didn't actually say, it is my will that my former fiancé should inherit, etc. He said, it is, of course, my will. Of course. As if there could ever be any alternative. As if 
there could ever be any doubt. Regina outlived her husband, which freed her to consider Kierkegaard and their relationship to one another. She lived a long time, suffering from doubts about what had happened, worried that she had done Kierkegaard wrong. The whole world viewed her as a victim, but she saw things more deeply than that. You might say Kierkegaard taught her how to see things from different perspectives like this, perspectives that let you see things with depth, but my guess is that her ability to do that is one of the things that drew him to her in the first place. Biographies came out, journals were published, years passed. The 19th century moved toward the 20th. And then one day, a priest in Copenhagen confessed that he was not familiar with the work of Soren Kierkegaard, a little white-haired woman with a kind expression reprimanded him. Not familiar, here in Denmark of all places, and you, a priest. The woman with the kind expression was stern, fierce, and devoted. The woman, of course, was Regina. Of course. <laughs> Okay, there we go. That's part one of our look at Soren Kierkegaard. Pretty much his life and his approach with some major works still to come. My goodness, we have all of either or yet. We have Fear and Trembling. We have The Diary of a Seducer and maybe some of his letters and journals to sprinkle in like tasty snacks in between some big meals. It's a Kierkegaardian feast. Hopefully we'll hit number one in Denmark, and then we can celebrate that as well. I'll have to check the charts. You see what a what a rankings grubber I really am. But guess what, people? This isn't about me. It's about the podcast. The podcast. It's the Regina to my Soren, or is it the Soren to my Regina? Let's stick with the former. <laughs> the Regina to my Soren. That's me. All going all soaring on my lovely Regina, this podcast. I care about it. I have to pretend to hate it in order to be happy because I want it to be happy, which means it must be liberated from my tyranny, from my melancholy, my despair. It needs to be free. I will trick it into thinking I am a cad, so it will be free from me because I know, I know it will be happier without me. And when it goes off and marries some other host, I will watch it from afar, contriving to meet it in the street and coldly dismissing it when I do, never again speaking to it, but privately obsessed. To all the world, I'm smiling as if I'm happy to be rid of the thing. And at night, alone in my studio, I will cry myself to sleep. On a happier note, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.